0: Achle Lekim one of the oldest Chabad Nagunim from the Altar Rebbe. It's from the very first Nechayach record published in 1960, uh, produced by Benedict Stambler of Collectors Guild, and conducted and arranged by Velvel Pasternak Oliva Shalom. And what you'll hear now is a uh, about the first uh, 50 minutes of uh, conversation that I had with Velvel here in Crown Heights at Chavrav Yisrael uh, three years ago, and uh, first, like to read to you something from Velvel's book, uh, Beyond Havdalah, in which he shares uh, many of the stories that you'll hear now, but lots of other things about his life and his life's work. He writes as follows in his book about that record, the first Nechayach record. A major problem could not be resolved. When the Hasidim sang, the pitch began to rise, a quarter tone, a half tone, and finally a full tone. In music, this is quite a distance. Because they were untrained singers, I assumed that they were not hearing the instrumentalists who were positioned in front of them. The solution, I thought, would be to take the musicians playing portable instruments and place them close to the Hasidim. For a few moments, the singing was steady but soon it again began to rise. No matter how many times we tried, the results were the same. I finally came to the realization that although the Hasidim were directing their songs for me, their conductor, they were really directing their songs to God in heaven on high. As they strove to get the melody heavenward, the pitch kept rising. As some of you know, Velvel passed away uh, this past Tuesday, June 11th, at Uh, the age of 85 I first learned about Velvel's uh, health condition a few months ago after coming across a blog post by his daughter Shira who lives in Israel and in that article she shares a story that is also from Velvel's book Beyond Havanagila with regards to being a consultant for the movie The Frisco Kid and uh She writes there that when she thinks about her father's great accomplishments, she first and foremost, though, thinks of her father's storytelling and his uh, ability to really uh, communicate messages through story. And he really was a master storyteller. So here are some of those stories. I hope you enjoy them. I'll post the link to the uh, full event in the description, as well as some other uh, articles and videos uh, available. I hope you enjoy them and look forward to talking to you soon.
1: I uh, was raised in Toronto, Canada. Uh, At the time I was raised in an Orthodox home, pianos were treif. I kid you not. Why were pianos treif? Because if you succeeded in becoming a good pianist, you might end up playing on Shabbos. So therefore, pianos were treif. But that wasn't so odd, because my father, who came from Eastern Europe, thought that tomatoes were treif. Why would he think tomatoes are treif? Because the only place he saw tomatoes was in the window of the Goyesha restaurants. I'm asking you, if it's in the Goyesha restaurant, how can it be kosher? So he didn't eat tomatoes. So this is the kind of thing that went on, and for some reason, every time I got near a piano, I tinkled. And uh, at the age of 13, my parents bought a piano. They became very progressive. And I got a teacher for a dollar an hour who made me, I was playing already with two hands, and she wanted to teach me how to play scales And I said to myself, for a dollar, I'm going to waste my time, so I gave it up. And I kept playing by ear. I went to Yeshiva University and was on my way to uh, rabbinical school, and I felt that uh, I I, I would rather do uh, homiletics through music rather than through droshes, uh, through sermons. Uh, I was lucky because in the mountains at that time there was a, a great uh, hotel called Schleimi Ehrenreich. It's going back many years ago. And the fellows from YU during Pesach used to serve as uh, busboys in the mountains. And one day during their break, they saw um, a fellow being kicked out of a bar in South Fallsburg and they picked him up and in his drunken stupor they found out that he was a uh, a double PhD in music and psychology (coughs) they brought him back to New York after Pesach you know, being nice Jewish boys and they got him an apartment in the Bronx and within a year he was teaching about 70 cantors you know, uh, vocal uh, and I heard about him, his name was Dr. Charles Gay, and I, uh, I said, teach me some rudiments of music. He said, I'll make a deal with me. No charge, but I had to sit with him in the bars in the Bronx after every lesson and watch him drink Canadian Club and wash it down with uh, milk, because he had an ulcer. And so it was for two years that I worked with this double PhD. drunk.
2: <laughs>
1: and uh, he boned me up for the entrance to the literature as materials of music in Juilliard. And I went there, got a little tired of it after six months, because all we were doing were masses and uh, mm-hmm. Misa Solemnis, et solemnness, etc., etc. And so I went to Columbia and I took a master's in music. And when I got out, they told me that I had to, I had to work in the Jewish schools. That I shouldn't be in the public schools. So I began teaching in a place called Brandeis, in uh, the Five Towns, very, very, uh, a very, very fancy uh, school. It was one of the first day schools in the country. Very, very interesting kind of schedule. Two periods, I taught music, and then I was off for an hour and a half. Then I taught for another hour, I was off for an hour and a half. So I figured the first couple of months, I had a cot in the room, so I I slept in between. Then I said, this is absolutely ridiculous. So I began to notate music because my teacher told me, I said, how do you write the notes? He said, do it and you'll find out. All right. So I did it and I found out. I began to notate the music. And in 1967, I had a call from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, a Rebetzin. And she said, are you Mr. Pasternak? And I said, yes. She said, we have a problem in Sheboygan. I said, what is your problem in Sheboygan? She says, my daughter is marrying a boy from Chofetz Chaim Yeshiva in New York. And they're going to bring about 60 boys from Chofetz Chaim. She said, so we went to the closest band leader to Sheboygan, which is in Chicago, and we said, do you know any Jewish music? And he said, absolutely. I said, what do you know? And he said, we know Hava Gila." She said, what are my 60 boys going to dance to? So she put her daughter on the telephone. Her daughter is very, very well-known sociologist in Brandeis University. Her name is Sylvia Barak Fishman, very well-known. She's written on all kinds of women's topics and orthodox. She got on the phone. She said, Mr. Pasternak, you you have to do a mitzvah. I said, what kind of mitzvah? You have to get me a book of the kind of music that we're going to use. I said, there is no book. She said, how much do you charge for writing out melodies? I said, "I, I don't charge. Tell me what you want. I'll tell you how much time I took and whatever you want, you'll, you'll send me. She gave me a list of 25 of the well-known yeshiva de gunim at the time and I wrote them out in pencil and put a couple of cords on top so for accompaniment. I sent them off to her, told her it took me an hour and a half or two hours. Two weeks later, I got back such a marvelous letter with brachas that we made the wedding the guys danced and everything was fine and wonderful. And she sent me a check for $25, which at the time in 1967 was, was really adequate. Six weeks later, I got a call from Tampa, Florida. A uh, Mrs. Goldenberg. She said, you know, we was in Sheboygan and we have the same problem. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know what she was talking about. I said, excuse me. She said, we were at this wedding, you know, and they used this wonderful music. She said, can you send me a copy? I'll pay you. I said, I didn't keep a copy. So she said, you have to do a mitzvah. I was busy doing mitzvah. (laughs) I I took the same 25 melodies and I wrote them out again. This time I kept myself a copy. Within the period of five months, I was sending out notated music to band leaders. In San Diego and in San Francisco and in Boston and in Atlanta, everybody was a machutin to this music. So I said to myself, they probably need it out there. So I sat down and I took all of the material that I had recorded from Lubavitch and from Majitz and from Bubov and from gare I sat for about a year and I cleaned everything up and I put together a book of music called Songs of the Hasidim. And now I take the manuscript to Metro Music, the big music distributor of, for the, for 20 years. This is in the, uh, from 1940 on, he was the big man. And he looked at the book and he said to me, at the manuscript, he said, you can't sell 10 copies of this. Okay, I mean, uh, so they told me to go to the non-Jewish publishers. So I went to Silver Burdett. And the guy looked at it, didn't understand the word of it, but he said, how many hundreds you think you can sell in the first printing? One guy tells me I can't sell 10, and the other wants to know how many hundreds I can sell. So I got very, very frustrated, developed a spastic colon, in honestly, and decided to look around how you can get this published, because Nobody, you know. So somebody said, "The Cantors probably know you from the recordings I did. The series of recordings of Moshe Tzababev and Why didn't you uh, send out a letter?" First, I went. I have to tell you, I went through the route of uh, Dr. Norman Lamb. May you live and be well. I was teaching him in Manhattan Day School. Said to me at the time, "You know, we're going to give you a man." who runs the music library, uh, the, the uh, Michael's Library in New York and in Jerusalem. And, uh, okay. And you'll write a letter and we'll send it to him and you'll get some money to put out the publication. I was teaching Manhattan Day School. My wife was pregnant with, with, our, uh, with our second, uh, with our son. And uh, one day I got a call in a classroom that there's somebody, there's a doctor on the telephone. So I ran out, I figure either my wife's water broke or God knows what's happening. And I get to the telephone and then some man says to me, Dr. Goldschmidt here. I said, yes, what's wrong with my wife? He said, no, 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 no. I'm calling about the letter you sent to Mr. Michaels. I am his secretary. He said, Mr. Michaels wants to know if you have music of Bobov? I said, yes. And music of Mojitz? I said, yes. And music of Vrishnitz? I said, yes. I answered yes to all of them. He said, that's wonderful. Mr. Michaels would like three copies of the manuscript. One for the Jerusalem Library, one for his personal library, one for the New York Library. I said, if Mr. Michaels knows that I'm looking to publish the book, I can't give out I'm uh, looking for funding. I cannot... Mr. Michaelis is not interested in the financial aspects. He only wants the manuscripts. Thank you. I hung up the telephone. I said, unbelievable. Rich men are, want the manuscript, but not a penny. Two weeks later, I get a call again. Dr. Goldschmidt here. Mr. Michaels has an idea for you. If you will publish the book in Israel, it will be much cheaper. Thank you. Okay? So I've sat for a, a year. Everybody wants this music all over. And here I am. So somebody said to me, go after the cantors in America. They know your name from the recording. So I wrote a note, uh, I started writing a letter, I am delighted to announce, or I'm pleased to, and I showed it to some advertising man. He says, you know what people do with a letter that says, uh, I'm happy to announce, or I'm delighted to let you know? They throw it in the garbage. So I said, kind father, give me an opening line. And he gave me a line, for which I'm grateful, and he said, Have you ever heard of Hasidic Niqan in the hope somebody would write it down? Question mark. Well, we have just done that. Boom. And I sent it out, and within two... uh, It was for $7.50 for the book including postage. Right? In 1968. Within two weeks I had 300 uh, postcards come in with checks. I mean, uh letters with checks. I knew that if a cantor gets uh, a $7.50 offer on Monday, he expects the book to be there on Thursday. So I ran to the, I quickly made a postcard and I sent it out to all of them saying, the book will be ready in uh, three weeks. It's at the printer now. And through it, so I sent it out. And that started it. And then I went around to the conventions of cantors and of rabbis with a little book, with uh, a little slip off of this book, and that started the uh, Baruch Hashem. It turned out to be uh, uh, twelve books of Hasidic music. Uh, I sort of gave up on being current when when the, the rabbi's sons came in with the new progressive Jewish music, and uh, at that time uh, I went into the broader aspect of Jewish music, so it was klezmer, it was choral, it was Yiddish it was Ladino, etc, cetera, etc cetera. so that's the genesis of Tara publications, now Baruch Hashem, I think 140 books spanning the uh, uh, I have not kept up with the, I, I just reprinted, I told uh, your uh, chairman here, I just reprinted the Karbach anthology, which I did for him, which has been out of print for 15 years. Uh, and I put out the, now a siddur anthology of all of the famous nigunim of the yeshiva world of the 20th century, you know, to keep them alive. We hear some of them at the weddings, but they're being forgotten because they're being transplant, transplanted by all of the uh, new yeah, nigunim.
0: And you've, and you've gone digital now.
1: We have, we're totally digital. We saw the I saw the writing on the wall two years ago, and I I took all of the books, everything, and all the recordings are in MP3s,
0: and that's it. Okay. Okay. Um, I, yeah, um, I'm wondering if we can go back to your childhood in Toronto. Could you tell me a little bit about uh, the influence that Majid's had?
1: The Majid's Rebbe would come to Toronto. Rabbi Saul Taub, who was the uh, the, the composer, really uh, the outstanding composer of Majez, just in the, the terms of how much he composed, would come to Toronto for two weeks every year. And my father, who had davened in the Majez Festival in the town of Chmelnik, uh, or Tvotsk, Chmelnik, would take me there. My father had a wonderful ear for music, not a good voice, uh, but a tremendous, he's here in Nigun once, and he would schlep me with him as a kid, as a seven-year-old, as a uh, an eight-year-old, and I would go every year. And those Nigunim I learned from my father and from the Rebbe. They became the Nigunim that they sang in all of the Shtivlach in, in Toronto. When I came to New York, uh, to YU, the uh, Ben Sion Schenker of Majids was busy making the second recording of the uh, three festivals of the Shalish Regolim. And I joined them as a music student. I joined them and took care of the baritone section and kept the, the Hasidim on pitch.
0: Okay, so that was the first Majus recording that you worked on.
1: That was the first that
0: I worked on, yes. And then you worked on several others.
1: Well, I worked on, on the we, we uh, broadened the Malava Malka record, which Bensi and Schenker had done. Uh, from a 10-inch LP into a uh, 33 uh, RPM, and we added some material. And then I did a recording with Bensi and Schenker called Chavez. Uh and then I did the two Marzitzer recordings, of Favorites number one and number two, which I did with a wonderful musician called Vladimir Haifetz, a, a cousin of Yasha Haifetz, a fellow who came from uh, uh, from uh, from Russia, and uh, I'll tell you an interesting story about him because I think it's pertinent to to this group here. Uh, he was a very secular Jew, and he got involved. He was a Russian uh, musician, and he got involved with the workman's Circle, and then somebody took him for a shul choir, and it's, he became a very cultural. A Jew, and we approached him to do the background uh, music for these recordings. And we did the uh, Lakovet Shabbos with him, and we did the Margits of Favorites number one and number two. And at one point, he said to me, uh, "You know, I always hear this music secondhand from you, because I would give him a an notation and a choral arrangement, and he did the the background with uh, we used." People from Radio City, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We did recordings that at the time cost sixty dollars an hour, which was unbelievable. And uh, he said, "I always hear it in. Uh, I would like to hear it in the raw, really." I said, "You know what? Simchas Torah is coming, and it would be very, very nice. I'll give you a couple of addresses, and you can go and uh, hear this music in the raw." So I gave him an address on Bedford Avenue of Sutner. And I gave him 770 of Eastern Parkway. And I met him right after Yamtev. And I said, How did it go? He said, Very interesting. I said, What's interesting? He came into uh, Satmer, dressed in a light gray suit with a white yarmulke, right? And uh, he stood in the back. Absolutely nobody paid attention to him. No one. Suddenly, you heard on the evening that, you really, not good. So every musician carries with him staff paper, five lines, so you can write music. He took out the paper and took his pencil and began to write. He said, crazy people. They picked him up by the elbows and <laughs> put him out in the middle of Bedford Avenue. So he didn't know what happened to him, but there was a cab passing by. He had the address of 770. So he took the address and he told the cab driver to take me to Eastern Parkway.
2: Yeah.
1: He came in, stood in the back there, in his light gray suit with the white yekipa, and nobody paid attention to him. When he heard a good nigga was later at night, he took out his staff paper again, began to write. Then he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote until the nigun was finished. And when he put the piece of paper back in his pocket. Somebody came over and said Shalom aleichem. Who are you, right? Told them who they were. They took them up front, right, to the dais, right. Such wonderful people, you know. (laughs) Two nights later, they were teaching him Tanya on Twenty (laughs) Eighth (laughs) Street. Ah, yeah. (laughs) Forever, forever after that. I mean, here was the difference, you know. Satmer put him out with his elbows, you know, and this one. But he is the one that he wanted to get a feeling, and and he did get it from the, the Lubavitch He
0: got it from the Satmer also, but at least he. Uh, okay, yeah. so speaking of Chaban, so how did the uh, production of the first record of the Chaya come about? Who, who approached you? Oh, it was it was really a.
1: See, we were living here on Union Street in Crown Heights and I was approached by Benedict Stambler who ran a company called Collectors Guild. He was a Sephardi Jew who was into Jewish music and he was the first one to put out the reissues of Cantorials and, and the yeshiva stuff. Uh, he was a phenomenal guy and he, he got in touch with Chabad and I was asked to to do a a job with the Chabad, uh, what are they called singers, and uh, they gave me a musical mentor and director whose name Rabbi Shmuel Zalmanov, of blessed memory, uh, very interesting man. Uh, he came up to my apartment. We had an apartment on Union Street, as I said, and it was a one bedroom apartment. Uh, the living room had one piece of furniture in it, a piano, a Baldwin acrosonic piano that, you know, at the time was... Uh, and he looked at the piano and he said, uh, the, 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 the piano was missing some schmichikis. <laughs> I didn't know yet that I was in trouble, but... Uh... So he brought up 16 of the best singers of Lubavitch came in. It was the time of the Castro period. Sixteen guys with scrubby beards came up on Union Street. I think my neighbors were freaked out. They sat down. They handed me a Sefer Hanegunim, the, uh, the Bible of Nagina for Lubavitch. And um, I began to play, and these guys began to sing. And I could have been in Oshkosh, and they could have been in Biberik because what I was playing and what they were singing were... So he said to me, you're not playing correctly. Okay. Broad shoulders. I tried again. I said, I am reading what is written. It it took me a little while to understand what the story was with this. They had selected cantor Yeshua Weiser, who was one of the famous cantors here in Brooklyn, and they gave him six or eight of the famous Labavitch singers, or the Lubavitcher chassidim, and they closeted themselves in 770, and he said to them, you sing, and I'll write, I'll notate. And the six or eight guys could not come to the exact same version. So he said to himself, they can't read music anyway. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I'll prove it to you. Because 10,000 of those books were sold by Lubavitch and were in every shrunk in Lubavitch's world, and not one person knew that they weren't written correctly. Okay? He wrote it, not correctly, he wrote it the way he thought they meant it to be sung. So here I am playing from the music that he notated in there. Uh, you know, and and every two minutes, somebody would say, Nishtazai. no, not like that, not like that. So finally, uh, what I did was that I had them sing for me, or, or get Zalmanov to sing for me, the correct version, and I changed the music, and I, I wrote it out, okay? Now we get to the problem of, of doing a job of doing a recording, so I say to them very, very simply, you have to begin together and end together for recordings. <laughs> and they looked at me like I was absolutely mad. What do you mean? We always begin together and end together. What they thought was that they were going to be at a fabreng, where the Rebbe did this when he wanted them to start a knee, and he did this when he wanted to stop. And here this, this young whippersnapper is saying that he should uh, <coughs> uh, start together and end together. So I tried to convince them that at the forbring was quite different, but this was going to be listened to by people, and you expect that you begin and end together. Not. We got over that hump after a while, okay? Now we go on for four months, we rehearsed. Get them to sing together. Sing a little bit with masikas, with a little bit with, you know, not, not the fabring and, you know, the, uh, with the passionate kind of singing. I wanted them to sing, to have a harmony so it, it would build up the rawness of the... They couldn't do it. They couldn't concentrate on anything except the melodic line. So I hired three ringers Three guys, professional singers, to do baritones, to do the. Uh, I remember one of them was coming by, uh, and the, the group happened to have been outside one day. We were rehearsing someplace on, I, I know, President Street, and and the guy was uh, without a kippah, and I said, "Oh, here comes David Eisen," and they looked at me and they said, "No kippah." I ran out to him and I said, listen, if they ask if you're wearing tzitzis, make sure you say yes, because otherwise we're finished. Anyway, the three ringers, it began to work. Six months, four months rather, in rehearsal, and uh, then I said to them, it's time to think of doing the recording. So they said to me on, on a couple of conditions. What are the conditions? Number one, They said that we have to have a Malava Malka first on a Saturday night in somebody's home. And I said, why? And they said, because we're going to have a Fagrin in order to start this project. I said, okay. What is the second condition? It has to be on a Monday night or a Tuesday afternoon. I said, Why? They said we we're only going to record on a night of Tuesday on a, on Tuesday. Why? If you know Bereshit, Genesis, Kitov, and God saw that it was good, it says it twice. So therefore Tuesday is a day of mazel, and you guys know that Chabad, Niches, and all kind of Hasidim. We'll move from one apartment to another on a Tuesday. We'll open a business on a Tuesday. We'll announce a shidduch on a Tuesday. It is a a good day. I said, okay, and uh, what's the the other condition? They said, uh, no, that'll be okay. All right. So... uh, we get there on a Saturday night and the we had there for bring and they had Nahit uh, chickpeas and, and beer and uh, all kinds of rugalach, you know. It was fine. And each one decided he was going to sing solo for me. You know uh, God help us. If I had known if I had known beforehand, I never would have done the job because as a group I could sort of mold them into you know, but singing and you know, some of them. I had one guy, Talishevsky, cousin Talishevsky. What you, what you call him? We called him Tall Chief because it was a lot easier. Just like the engineer would call them Lubos, he couldn't get by Labovich, but they, <laughs> they were forever the Lubos. Okay, we hired a, a studio in rock and roll territory, 1961. Uh, yeah, 58 and Eighth Avenue. And every I was saying, what, what, so what did you observe at the Malava Malka about their singing style? Of their singing style?: Yeah, they, they, they were singing it was absolutely terrible for a recording <laughs> the, I, it, was, it was raw. By themselves, they were raw. But in the group, we were able to by the way, I still can't listen to that recording, but the London Jewish Chronicle called it the most the perfect ethnic music recording of
0: Hasidic music ever made. And uh, I, I think i remember so you, you noticed that that Malta that the singing wasn't yeah for for the air. It was for themselves. It was for themselves, yeah. Right. But now I'm going to get them. I, I I've worked with as a group
1: together. One would bolster the other. It was okay.
0: All right, so tell us about radio. Rock radio. and roll
1: territory. I mean, I, I've told this story a thousand times, but it's especially good in in a chabad venue. The uh, I, every every doorway had a guy, the guy with a guitar with long hair. So I have these 16 guys from Lubavitch coming to record the music that the Rebbe asked him to record together with Rabbi Zalmanov. And it's on 8th Avenue and 58th Street the studio upstairs and I have a an engineer who's not Jewish, very, very well known at the time. He did all the Jewish recordings called David Hancock and we had Mrs. Stambler, the producer's uh, wife in the technical room, uh, right? Getting ready, we showed up. I told him to be there at 7.30 sharp, right? Okay, uh, at, at 7.15, he said to me, where are the Lubos? I hung out the window looking and saw nothing. 25 after 7, I looked out again. A big caravan coming up the street. You know beards all over the place. You know, <laughs> so I thought to myself that my Laba- I recognized one in the front that the Lubavitcher guys had. Uh, they met up with another group of Hasidim, and that my sixteen guys would come up to the studio, and the rest of the uh, the rest of the group would go on their way. That <laughs> was wrong. When the when the elevator finished. Disgorging itself for the fourth time, I found that I was in a room with at least 40 people, my group, Chassidim, together with women, and what do you call it, and older chasidim and Rabbi Zamorov, and I said to them, excuse me, who are all these people? He, he said to me, and I've, I've learned to watch out for these two words. Ever since I that night, he said to me, "Don't worry." <laughs> you know, Chabad. Said, Don't worry, okay. And they're carrying. All of a sudden, I noticed that there were crates, and I opened up the crates, and there were apples and oranges, long, and then two guys had brown bags under their arm, and I I watched them, and they took out. At the time, four bottles of what we officially know in Hasidic life as zeksenainziger. That's that. You know what zeksenainziger is? If you want to drink Drano and survive, you drink that stuff. I, I, all of a sudden, I, I, I became a sugar, and I said to them, exactly what is going to happen here? And they said. We are doing an avodah for the Lubavitcher Rebbe. We, we we are not, you know, straight singers. We can't sing just for for microphones. So I said, "What's going to happen?" They said, "We're going to have a shtickle for bring, <laughs> not not a whole for bring, but a shtickle for bring." And what they did was they passed out all of the fruit and everything and the cake whatever they had there, and the guys drank lachaim to each other. And they hung up a picture of the Rebbe. <laughs> they brought with them, uh, right? And everybody drank Lachanah to the Rebbe. And I'm standing there, and the the uh, non-Jewish engineer, David Hancock, says, we should call variety because nobody would ever believe this. <laughs> okay? So here we are. We have enough for Frank. I said to Rabbi Zalmanov, it's funny, 20, you know, 40 years after I said to Rabbi Zalmanov, uh, how long will this fabreng take? <laughs> and if you ask a Chabatsky a good question, he gives you a very good answer. He said, Rabbi Pasternak, by the way, they gave me smicha that night, <laughs> which I, I can't give back. They, they said, uh, he said to me, Rabbi Pasternak, I want you to know, this fabreng will take exactly as long as it takes, not one." <laughs> Not one minute longer, okay. So now they're finishing their yash, you know, and I sit back. Finally, when they were finished, they took the women, they put them in the back, and the kids in the back, and the older people in the back, and the guys stood around the microphone, they took off their jackets, they flexed their scissors, and now they said, quote, we are ready to do the bidding of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. God forbid the conductor, but the laboratory <laughs> At this point, we're ready to start, and Rabbi Zalmanov says to me, uh, Rabbi Pasternak, he said, uh, please don't conduct. I said to me, excuse me, what do you mean? He said, don't conduct. He thought I didn't understand. He said, you know, don't make with the hands. <laughs> I said, Rabbi Zalmanov, what do you mean don't make with the hands? He says, no. Sit down, you get paid anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You should stand there in front of a group of musicians and a group of... I, I said to him, Rabbi, what are you talking about? I've been training this group for four months now, whatever it is. What is the problem? He said that if you conduct and they watch your hands, it will get in the way of the kavana of their concentration. I said, Rabbi, how can you do this to me? I mean, I'm the conductor of this group. I spent four months rewriting the music. He said, I see you're a difficult man. <laughs> so I will tell you the truth. And this is what it said. You can conduct, but nobody will watch you. Right, <laughs> well, it's out in the open. And I mean, four months, they will. So, I had trained them, I think, well enough that when the music began to play, you know, nobody's watching me. We're going along and we're singing, and things are falling into place. We're about to do Uforatza, you know? And our studio, it was a very interesting situation that uh, God in his infinite wisdom creates Shiduchim on the ground. There was an inner studio, if you can imagine, over there. And the bathrooms are, you have to go down to the bathroom. And in that group was rehearsing a group of uh, ballet Americana girls who, when they rehearse, they rehearse in skin tight leotards. And I can paint you the picture exactly as it happened. One of the young ladies had to use the facilities, and she saw that the green light in the studio, which means you can walk in or some action can take place. When the red light is on, everything drops dead, only the music. But the green light is on, you can come in. Had to use the facilities, and so she gingerly walked in to the studio to get to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, I hear from the... uh, From the studio, uh, from the inside, uh, uh, Hancock says, where are they? (laughs) And I I looked up, 16 guys, not a trace, they're out. (laughs) So uh, I'm not not saying this to be critical, because I'm saying, I, I make a point with this nice story, because to them it meant something totally different than it meant to me at the time. And I said to them, uh, I went out into the hallway, didn't see them, so I took the elevator down the street, and 16 guys on the street, I I said to them, what are you doing here? We're in the middle of recording. They said, you didn't see what happened? I said, what happened? They said, a half-nude girl walked into the room while we singing singing Uferatsu. I thought the blood was going to burst in my head. I'm, I'm My pressure must have gone up. And I said to them, the only two brilliant things, my wife will agree, only two brilliant things I ever said in my life was there on 58th Street. I said to them, the age of miracles will never cease. I said, I who had my eyes open did not see them. You had your eyes closed. You saw that girl walk in? They said to me. No jokes. I said it's not a joke. They said, "I said what is the problem?" They said, "You know, you're treating this as a a recording, and we are treating it as an avoda. If we were davening in shul and a young lady with leotards walked in the middle of davening, we would leave. No difference." I said, "So what do you want me to do? It's, it's embarrassing." we will not go up until you change the studio. I, I said, I should change the studio? We will not go up until you change the studio. I said, how am I supposed to do it? They said, you'll find a way. So I went upstairs and I saw the manager and I said to him, you won't believe this, but I'm having a rebellion on my... He said, what's the problem? I said, you know who these guys are that are next door? You saw them, yeah. He said, who are they? I said, they're a group of Amish from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> I oh, I'm going to tell them that they're Chabadnickes, you know? He'll say to me, sugar, do me a favor. So I convinced him that they had to go on with their, what they call it, and I also took in with me a half a bottle of the Zex Neinsker <laughs> that was left, and I gave it to him. And the girls went into a different studio. Only then could we go back and record. Okay? Now, it, I'm trying to tell you that as funny as the story is, you know, in Yiddish there's an expression, Malach mit yashrikis, that you're laughing on the inside and crying on the outside, whatever it is. And at the time, it was not funny. It, it's it's humorous now, but the iker is that they were doing... Um, They were doing a davening. They weren't doing a recording for no matter who it was. And they were right. They weren't going to be bothered by my hands. Nothing could get in the way except the... uh... So that was my experience with Chabad. It was the first really Hasidic recording that I did because the other recordings that we did were done with conservative cantors.
0: Yeah. Now, speaking of the conservative cantors, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with the Bub of Recordings?
2: <laughs>
0: you read my book.
1: That's why.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Bub of Recording. I, I was asked. Well, yeah, one of the songs you're going. Yeah, was a result of one of the songs you're going to sing later on, called Beni. I was called in the Bub of a Rebbe Reb Schleimer. who used to live on St. Mark's Avenue. Uh, just a couple blocks away. And I was called in by him and by uh, this Ben Stambler, the producer. And he said to me at the time that his own son had come home from Yeshiva, days school where you Yeshiva, and he had said he had learned a beautiful melody called Beni Beni, which he'll sing later. And he said, the Bova Rebbe said, you you don't know that your grandfather wrote this melody he said no he said it's he said if my own son doesn't know what his grandfather wrote how would I expect my Hasidim to know the music of Babab? therefore he said it has to be permanently recorded and he asked me through the producer to do the uh, uh, was it 16 pieces of the uh, 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 of a repertoire okay I began to write this the Bobov is like a Galician group they they, uh, they daven differently they don't say Boruch atah. they say atah, right? so now I have to I, I'm, I'm writing out the music in the Lithuanian pronunciation Boruch atah. and my uh, Hasidic mentor Rabbi Halberstam who was a cousin of the Rebbe? He said to me, It won't work. I said, What do you mean it won't work? He said, This has to be done in the original esprach. original way. I said, What do you mean? He said, You know, I said, You must be kidding me. I mean, this is going to be for a recording. Who wants to hear that now? The world is trained to, uh, you know, in the misnagdic way that you say, Baruch he said to me, I had learned it before, but he said to me, don't worry, do it. <laughs> so now I took all of the music and I retransliterated from my singers and I wrote. Booyach, <laughs> B-O-O-R, Yech, Y-E-C-H, Atu, <laughs> A-T-O-O, Kaini, E, E, I don't know if I should put <laughs> another couple of E's on it. <laughs> and I looked at it and I said, this is never going to work. And he said to me, don't worry."
2: <laughs>
1: now at that time, I decided after the Lubavitcher experience <laughs> that I was going to use guys who could read music and could sing, you know what I mean? And could pretend that they, they knew the Hasidic music. So I had a group of uh, cantists from Long Island uh, conservative cantors, by the way, there were a couple of orthodox guys too. Didn't matter who they were, but they—they they were all—they all knew Hebrew and they all knew uh, music. And we would get together, and one night we would rehearse the whole thing, and then we'd go to the studio with the musicians. Okay, so I get them the first night, and uh, I remember there was a cantor from Freeport, Long Island, who picked up the music. And he looked at it, and he said very, very quietly, uh, so, Velvel, in what language are we singing? (laughs) (laughs) So so I I said to him, uh, look, the the rabbi uh, Alvishton wants us to do this in the authentic way, as he said, and therefore we will do it in a... Okay, so... We start, uh, we start to sing and we get through. Uh, I think the, uh, the piece was Simen Tov a Mazel Tov, which works out to be Simen Tov, E Mazel Tov, Yehai, Luminil Yesuel Uman. Right? <laughs> so we get to Simen Tov, that's good, E Mazel that's good. Yeah, hi, Loony. We get to the word Loony, and the group cracks up. One guy says, "Is this loony Tunes?" I said, "I said to them, uh, I, uh. we try it again. No good. Try it a third time, and it begins to feed on itself. I can't do it. So I, um, I said, Rabbi." It's not me. I wrote it out the way you wanted it. Please. He said to me, don't worry. I take care of it. He walks over. Nice, broad-brimmed black hat. Beautiful Beard the here. He said to him, you and your fancy conductor <laughs> are very, very sad that this is in the authentic orshprach. He said, when I can convince people in the normal way, he tells a story. <laughs> wow. Go ahead, be my guest. This is a story he tells, and I'm going to use his accent because it, it has the flavor of this Jew. I've never heard a better, authentic, ethnic story to bring out a point. He said, a group of tensers from the Ivory Coast, you know, Tensils, those people tense. <laughs> <laughs> A group of Tensils from the Ivory Coast. And their conductor there came to the minister, the cultural minister of Israel, and said, we would like to have intercultural relations. See, even in English, the A becomes I. Intercultural relations, he said, between our two cultures. And therefore, we would like to bring this culture to your nation. The minister from Israel said, That would be wonderful. Oh, the minister from the Iraq said, We must make you aware of a problem. We have the ivory Coast. So the minister from uh, the ivory Coast, said, what is the problem? He said, you see our tents, tents only bare-chested. So the minister from Israel said, bare-chested? What do you mean bare-chested? He said, you know, knock it, open, <laughs> expose. So the minister from Israel said, really? Open, knock it? Exposed, you know what they'll do for me in Israel? It said, Chief Rabbi in Tel Aviv, throw me down from the cliff. They put stones after me. Chief <laughs> Rabbi in Jerusalem, hang me from a light pole. He said, what? You cannot do that. You can't, you, you, you can't do that. He said, Cha, 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 cha. I have it. No problem. Don't worry. No problem. He said, When you come. Here for Israel, and you come down from the plane, we will be there with shmatis. Shmatis, <laughs> rags. And we will give you those shmatis to cover it up. <laughs> so the minister from the Ivory Coast said if we cover this up, it is no longer the themselves from Ivory Coast, maybe from some other nationality the same thing with you, you are very embarrassed. Our music, our singing is so open, so exposed. It's so, you say, you're high loony. He said, you cover this up and you say you lanu. It is not the music of Bubba any longer. Maybe from some other facility group. He said, ours has to be. That is the story that this man with this shrubbery and the kapata and everything else told us. He was right. He was absolutely right, because the music of Bobov should be done the way Bobov sings it. The music of Lubavitch should be done the way Lubavitch sings it. So that is the story of Lubavitch and Bobov.
0: So I hope you enjoy those stories. I remember when I picked up Velvel to uh, come to Crown Heights for this event. I uh, came into his house and. We chatted a bit, and his wife was there, and then I saw his wife uh, put her coat on, and then I said, oh, you're you're coming as well. And she said, of course, and then Velvet was like, I don't go anywhere without my wife. And uh, I found that to be very touching as I found uh, their conversations between each other from the number of times that I, I visited them and, and got to hear how they spoke to each other and really something special. So uh, I asked him about that, and in his uh, usual uh, wit and humility, uh, you'll hear the response. Their relationship was clearly something special, and I'll include a link to a video in which they share some stories about how they met and their marriage. It's really something special. After that, we'll close it out with a niggin that Velvum. Uh, makes reference to earlier. That's the Nigan Beni, the Bub of Nigan, from the first of the two Bub of records that Velvel worked on, on behalf of uh, the Bub of Ereba, together with Laser Halberstam. Uh, you'll hear the Nigan in its entirety, and I hope uh, you'll enjoy it. And I'll post a link to it as well in the description. Hope you've enjoyed this, and look forward to uh, bringing you other stories very shortly talk to you soon i noticed just from visiting you a few times that you have a pretty exceptional relationship with your wife and yes. that a lot of us here are single or, or yeah. recently married yeah. can you tell us any tips or how that <laughs> yeah well you,
1: first of all if you're in an apartment get yourself a basement where you can hide <laughs> i've done all my work in the basement which is my studio it's wonderful if I had a bathroom down there, I'd never see my wife. <laughs> Secret of success: uh, we always had. It. I don't know. How long have you been married? Fifty-eight years.
0: Wow! <laughs> yeah. And we're still we're still friends. Friends. That's yes. that's what I. The yes. way you were talking to each other, I said that's probably yeah. Uh, friends. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You haven't heard us when we argue, but and Brandeis, I mentioned that. On a Friday night, they got together. Everybody should introduce themselves. You know, it was a kind of Shabbaton, and I was out there as a scholar in residence for the weekend. And uh, we went around the room. I am Moshe Goldenberg, and there my wife, you know. And suddenly, an old man said, "My name is Misha Kalis. I am an artist who came from Russia. And today, he said, I am very, very happy." to be here with you people, he said, especially since we are celebrating our 60th wedding anniversary. And everybody clapped. And somebody from the back said, to what do you attribute this longevity? He said, we always hold hands. And somebody said, what does that do? He said, I tell you, I don't know, but if we ever let go, we'd kill each other.
2: (laughs) I live